Hello, my name is Jody Lee Mott, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the kids' books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. This week's poem, to get us started, is a very short one. The title of it is The Jellyfish. It was written by Douglas Florian, and it can be found in his Underwater Creatures poetry book called In the Swim, which he also illustrated. Douglas has written and illustrated several books of poems for kids, including Bow Wow, Meow Meow, Lizards, Frogs, and Pollywogs, and Dino Thesaurus. The Jellyfish by Douglas Florian Thin as a drape, umbrella-shaped, it gently glides through the seascape. Though small in size and with no eyes, its tentacles can paralyze. In sporty spurts, it loves to flutter in its vain search for peanut butter. Our guest today is Mike Grosso, fifth grade teacher, musician, and author of the middle grade novel, I Am Drums. You can find Mike's website at www.mikegrossoauthor.com. Thank you for joining me today, Mike. Thank you for having me, Jody. I mentioned you wrote this middle grade novel, I Am Drums. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, I Am Drums. It's about a 12-year-old girl. She loves drums more than anything. She hears uh, rhythms in her head and music in her head all the time, which um, the book's not autobiographical, but that one piece was uh, very, very autobiographical for me. I uh, heard music in my head growing up, still do to this day. Also had trouble sitting still the same way she does in class. So, um, And basically, she, she wants to learn how to play the drums more than anything, but she encounters the fact that her school is ending its uh, music program, so she's you know devastated shortly into the book to find out that the school is uh, cutting all of its music programs. She won't be able to learn there. And she also has parents who are suffering a lot of residual effects of the recession. Her dad recently lost his job, ended up getting another one, but it didn't pay anywhere near as much. Um, so the last thing her, her, her family really wants to hear is, hey, can I have a drum set, Mom and Dad? Uh, they don't have the money for it, so that's uh, they're not really into their daughter having an expensive hobby, quote-unquote. Uh, so she basically has to learn how to play the drums in secret. And playing drums in secret is very difficult because it is a very loud instrument. But I assure you, she does figure out a way to do it. Um, and she uh, definitely, you know, not every decision she makes is the best. And she certainly hits a few roadblocks along the way. But she does figure out a way to do it. How has your um, experience as an elementary teacher and a musician uh, helped to uh, inform your own writing and inspire it? Well, I think as an elementary teacher uh, with middle grade literature is that I've really dived headfirst into that particular literature. When I became an elementary teacher, I ended up reading a lot of the books my kids were reading. And it's because I, I really wanted to walk the walk and I really wanted to be able to talk with them about the books they were reading and be able to make suggestions and get them to a place where they're comfortable coming to me and asking, hey, what books do you like what and and i actually have kids that'll say like what's a book you think i will like um so they're asking for very specific things so i sort of dived headfirst into middle grade literature and really found out that i loved it and the big cliche they say about writing is they say writers need to find their voice and you know i certainly made attempts to write adult fiction in the past and maybe i will in the future i don't know but i know that when i started trying to write middle grade literature 
something just really clicked. It was very easy for me to jump back into those years of my life and write in a way that talked to kids at their level. Kids know right away when you're condescending to them. If you're talking down to them, if you're you know treating them like they're not as smart as you are, you might be older and you might have more experience, you might know more, but you know if you want to be a teacher or an author, both of those are good times for you to really talk to kids at their level and make sure you know that that's how they know you care about them is when you can speak to them that way. And as a teacher, you have to even spend a lot of time as a disciplinarian, but even in those instances, you have to come at it from a place where they understand that you're doing it for a reason that has to do with you caring about them. And that to be true both for teaching and for uh, writing middle grade books. They just, you, you've got to be authentic to them. They need to believe what you're saying and they need to take you at face value. And especially when writing books, they'll know right away. If you're an adult trying to sound like a 12-year-old, they'll spot it pretty quick. If you actually are pulling it off and making yourself sound like a real person, then they, they will buy into it from first to last page. And um, as a musician, I think what's helped me with that is, I mean, I grew up in a musical family. My mom was an upright bass player. My dad played guitar. Uh, my brothers were really into rock music, so I kind of got into the, all that by osmosis. And so there's a lot of things that I am drums. They, they don't get overly technical. It's not trying to teach music, but... There are things in there that are very accurate to playing drums. And people who are uh, kids who are drummers have spotted it right away and they know, oh, this is really what playing drums is like. And for people who don't play drums, it can be kind of interesting to hear some of the uh, invisible things that drummers have to practice that you don't really notice when they're rocking out in a drum kit. But still, they have to spend hours and days and weeks and, and years practicing in order to get to where they're at. So. Very happy to share all that with kids. Is there a little bit of the book you'd like to share right now? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I'm always torn between whether I want to read apart from the first chapter, because the first chapter, a lot of people love the way the, the book starts, the way its voice starts. But I'm actually going to read apart from chapter two that I read at my uh, book launch party. It's going to be an abridged version of it, because I think it really shows where Sam, the main character, is at the beginning of the story, where she is and what she has to do in order to try and learn drums. And then the rest of the book shows how that learning drums basically gets more and more desperate until she kind of just has to do it herself. My parents still own an encyclopedia, a real encyclopedia, not something you find online that claims Bigfoot invented the light bulb. I'm talking about a collection of 400-pound books full of stuff you never wanted to know until your teacher assigned a research paper about it. I'm glad my parents still have them, because they make a solid thump that's perfect for the sound of toms, the drums mounted on top of the bass drum. They melt flawlessly with an old, falling-apart Calvin and Hobbes book that I use as a snare. It's a paperback, so it makes a nice, high-pitched thwap when I hit it. A huge, and I mean really huge, dictionary is my bass drum so I put it on the floor under my computer desk and stomp it with my Converse All-Stars whenever I need a thick lump. My computer desk is kind of funny because it doesn't have a computer on it. My parents call it a homework desk to make me feel better about my lack of a computer, which seems odd to me, even if it is a pretty good place to do homework. It beats working in the kitchen, where my younger brother, Brian, complains nonstop about how much homework third graders get. Whenever I go near Brian, he says, Stop staring at me. And I say, I'm not staring at you. Can you see me right now? Yes. How could you see me unless you're staring at me? 
If I was staring at you, Brian, my eyeballs would be on fire. Mom, Sam's staring at me. It's all downhill from there. I've been calling my computer slash homework desk my drum desk for five years. Ever since I saw a drum solo by John Bonham from Led Zeppelin in an old music documentary. My brain exploded as his arms flew across the kit during the song Moby Dick. I went online and researched each piece of a standard drum set that night, memorizing the purpose and setup for each one. I learned the hi-hat is two cymbals that clamp together when the drummer presses a pedal, and the crash cymbal sounds just like its name, and the snare is the backbeat in rock music because it sounds like someone getting punched in the face in a martial arts movie. Today is nice because no one's home yet, and I've been rocking out for a full 20 minutes when a thought enters my mind. Listen to the message. Find out what Dr. Pullman said, so you can at least have an idea of how bad it's going to be. And I should just say that this is a part of the chapter towards the end where she's basically realizing that she got in trouble at school earlier that day, and she knows the principal's going to call home. I stand up from my drum desk and walk downstairs, the wooden steps creaking and the railing rattling. I pick up the phone and listen for the double click of the dial tone that confirms there's a new message. I punch in the four-digit password and hit one to hear new messages, and I hear Dr. Pullman's voice. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Morris. This is Daniel Pullman from Kennedy Middle School calling about a lunchroom incident this afternoon that involved your daughter. Please call me back whenever it is convenient to do so. I can be reached at... Dr. Pullman rattles off a number, but I'm not really listening. He wants to have a personal conversation with my mom and dad. That is not good. They'll be mad just for being inconvenienced. Not my mom so much, but my dad. Oh, man, you don't want him mad. You pretty much lose every privilege you can imagine, even if it's only a little bit your fault, even if you just lost control for a split second, even if you felt totally humiliated. There's a loud beep signaling that Dr. Pullman's message is over. Press 7 to save this message. Press 9 to delete this message. I pull the phone away from my ear and try to come up with a way to explain this to my dad. I don't want him any madder at me than he already is. He spent the whole school year fielding calls about how I'm falling behind and not taking middle school seriously and how I still think I'm a fifth grader or something. Can I manage to make it a few more months until summer without getting into more trouble with my dad? The computerized voice says, Please make a selection. Press 7 to save this message. Press 9 to delete this message. My hand shakes, but I slowly bring my index finger down. It lands on the number 9. Your message has been deleted. I hang up the phone and run back upstairs, trying to forget the message ever existed, because as far as anyone besides me and Dr. Pullman knows, it never really did. And that's a little abridged version of Chapter 2, so it's the first of a few decisions she makes that readers feel complicated about. And uh, yeah, I, and my response to them is, yep, that's kind of what I intended. So, Well, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, now, the book you chose to talk about today is one of your favorite kids' books, is uh, Anastasia Krupnik by Lois Lowry, which is uh, published in 1979 by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And Lois Lowry is a familiar name in children's books, but this book may not be as familiar as some of uh, her other titles. So can you tell readers who may not be familiar with this particular book what it's about? Uh, absolutely. Well, Anastasia Krumpnik is obviously about its title character, Anastasia. She is a 10-year-old girl, and, you know, there are, there are a lot of other things that factor in. She's She's been an only child all 10 years and is now 
finds out her mother is expecting a new baby, so she's definitely concerned about that. But really, when I when I, when I pitch the book, I pitch it as literally it is a quirky ten year old girl who at no point in the book do they really point out that she's quirky. She just has things she's concerned about, and they're not you know like oh do I need a you know, is, is there a boy? There's a little bit of things like crushes and stuff like that and friends, but that's not really the focus. The focus is she's concerned about having a baby brother. Also concerned about things like if I get a shirt with my name on it, my name Anastasia Krumpnik is too long. It's going to go into my armpits. And mom and dad, how could you give me this long name? And it's uh, these things that as an adult, I read the book. And they were just so hilarious and entertaining to me because they rang so true to a 10-year-old. But when I was a kid and I read it, I remember reading it and thinking, you know what, she's got a point. You know, she she's really just, she's being so reasonable about things. And as I read it as a kid, it was always very uh, entertaining and fun to read her, her and how she feels and how she interacts with her friends and parents. As an adult, it was such a nice reminder that, you know, we, we think with kids that they're being so obsessive and dramatic about these things that they worry about. And, you know, why are kids so melodramatic? And the truth is, to them, that stuff's very important. You know, they don't choose to be melodramatic. When you're a kid, these things are very big and important, and they're a part of figuring out who you are. And Anastasia, her particular way of kind of learning who she is and, and how she interacts with the world, is just particularly uh, fascinating to me. It was fascinating to me as a kid when I read it, and it's fascinating to me as an adult. And it's also a, a really good reminder that uh, when I was a kid, it's about a 10-year-old main character, and it would, by many people, be classified as a girl book. But nobody told me it was a girl book when I was a kid, and I loved it to death. And to this day, I would hand it to a boy uh, in my fifth grade class. I think actually one's borrowing my copy of it right now. And I wouldn't think twice about it. And it's a nice reminder that, you know, books are marketed towards genders, but they don't really have genders. There's really no reason why a book should be exclusively for a boy or a girl. Those are really mostly boundaries and rules that we adults set for kids, and they follow them because we've told them those things. But at the end of the day, if there's a princess book and a boy wants to read it, I mean, yeah, okay, let, her, let him read it. If he's not reading it, it's probably because at some point in time we told all the boys in the class that you're not supposed to read those. But at the end of the day, you know, yeah, it, it's a nice reminder to me as both an author and as a teacher that let the kids pick up the books they want and kind of go from there. As you mentioned, she's a quirky uh, kind of character. And what's the appeal uh, to kids when they're reading books like this for a character who's a little bit offbeat and maybe not typical of the of themselves or kids they might run into day to day? Yeah, well, I, I think kids a lot of times when they read books, the two things that very much appeal to them are seeing themselves in books. That's so important. Being able to see yourself in a book, no matter what kind of person you are, what background you are, what your personality type is, it's just so important to see yourself. So if you are going through life as a kid and you're feeling like you're a little quirky and you're just a little bit different from everyone, then seeing someone in a book who is not only that, but is in many ways rewarded for it or seen as a very interesting and cool character because of that can be very empowering, I think. And then seeing, you know, if another person in class reads it and thinks, oh, this book is, you know, so cool or so funny... And it's because of this character who's fascinating, then that can be really nice to see other kids connecting with that and maybe saying, you know, hey, quirky people are, are kind of cool and they're kind of entertaining and 
there's a lot of things about them that are very fun, I think can be uh, very important. That's, I think, one of the big things about it is it's just really important to, to see yourself, and so quirky kids can, can be entertaining in that way. And also just provide a little bit of comfort, too. There's things that Anastasia thinks about and feels, you know, whether it's about thoughts about her grandmother, things like she's in love with a wart she has on her finger. Uh, most kids would be horrified by that, but she looks at it and thinks it's, oh, it's this pink wart. It's so beautiful and wonderful. One part of me has thought, oh, that's kind of different. But another part of me was like, hey, I don't have a wart. And if I had one, maybe I'd be proud of it, too. I think those things can be very good for just helping kids think outside the box and realize that, yeah, this 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 character is quirky, but those people have their place, and there's so many good things you can do in life if you're thinking outside the box like that in all types of ways. Uh, one device that ties the novel together is this uh, list at the end of every chapter of things that Anastasia loves and she hates, and it changes throughout the book if we want to talk a little bit about that list. Oh, absolutely. It's one of the things that as a kid was very, very cool to see. And as an adult, I was able to analyze and see a little more what uh, I think Lois Lowry was doing with the list. Um, at the end of each chapter, though, there is a list of things Anastasia loves and things she hates. And through at the end of each chapter, you get to see what that is and you get to see how it's changed. And what you'll see is you'll see there are things that sometimes get crossed off because she no longer loves them or no longer hates them. Sometimes they move to the other column for one reason or another um, because she's changed the way she feels about them due to something that happened in the chapter. Sometimes there's brand new things that just appear there because, oh, I thought about it one day and it's there. I mean, as a kid, it was so fascinating to see. Like, I looked forward to it at the end of the, every chapter. Oh, what's her list going to look like this time? But as an adult, I kind of realized that, oh, Lois Lowry's telling part of Anastasia's story through what she loves and what she hates. And kids, you know, if they like something, they really love it. There's not, like, mild feelings about it. And if they don't like something, they hate it. It's not, there's no mild way of thinking about it. So I think, one, those lists really represent the way kids kind of think about their desires and their aversions. But it also is telling the story of how anesthesia feels about the world around her. At every end of every chapter, we learn a little bit more. And there's only one item in those lists that, if I'm correct, never changes the whole time. Um, at the end of the book, you, you look at it and you realize it's the one thing that has not moved at all, that she's never going to change the way she feels. Everything else in some way moves around and kind of represents the way we grow and change and, and change the way we feel about things. Now, along with this list, another focal point or something that ties the novel together is the impending birth of her new sibling. And she's not terribly thrilled about it. Been an only child. Uh, what is it about this new baby that really bothers her so much? I think what really bothers her so much, um, I mean, I think it's a couple different things, but I think it starts from the fact that she is, uh, she's been an only child for 10 years. And we could, you know, we could talk all day about the pros and cons of being an only child, the pros and cons of having brothers or sisters. You know, I had two older brothers, so I could tell you tons of pros and cons. But at the end of the day, I grew up to love my brothers. You know, who would have thought it? But I think she's had 10 years where she has been the child. She's been her mother and father's daughter. And she's, you know, some kids are very guarded around their parents, and some kids are very open. Anastasia 
is extremely open with her parents, and her parents are extremely open with her. And all three of them are a very quirky family. In some ways, they are so typical and ordinary. They, they get up in the morning, they eat breakfast, they enjoy their coffee, and they go to work and school. But their conversations are just some of the most interesting things in the book. When Anastasia tells her family how she's feeling about something, she tells them exactly how she's feeling. Her family listens and then reacts and gives, the, gives her point A, B, and C about how she feels and then kind of lets her do her thing. And so I think the impending arrival of a little brother kind of symbolizes this. It's not actually a threat to the family dynamic, but I think she sees it as a threat because she sees the way things have been for a very long time. And now that's going to change somehow. For those of us who've had brothers and sisters, we know that, yeah, they can be annoying and a pain, but it's not necessarily a bad change in the long run. But it is different, and I think for Anastasia, someone who is extremely close to her parents and extremely outgoing with them, that is particularly dis distressing to her because um, her and her family have such a specific relationship. And I wouldn't even necessarily say it's that it's this big loving relationship. It's not like they're hugging in each other all the time. It's not like that sort of big family affection thing. They're just very open and honest with each other. And that leads to some really, really amazing dialogue that I think she probably, yeah, thinks the little brother would kind of uh, curb on. There's a key moment in the book that really affects Anastasia where she gets up to read this poem and she's scolded for it because it's the wrong kind of poem. And I just wonder, do you think this is something that, you know, as a teacher, we try to encourage kids to be a little bit more creative? Or is it sometimes still a problem uh, of containing kids in these boxes? You know, it's definitely still a problem, but I think it is a case-to-case -case basis. I think, you know, teachers in general have definitely moved in the right direction. I think teachers, generally speaking, in most instances, you know, have their, they have their students' best interests at heart. And I think there's definitely a movement in the direction of bracing creativity and, you know, understanding that, you know, kids are going to be kids sometimes. You know, in the particular instance in this book where I really think the big dividing line is is that Anastasia's teacher basically does something that in education we call setting the student up to fail. That basically means that what you're doing with a child is you're, you're attempting to give them a moment where they are failing at something, and you're trying to use it to teach them rather than trying to lead them to success and showing that as a reward. That's a very basic way of putting that phrase, but that's essentially what we're talking about. She takes Anastasia... She talks to her about her poem, which is undeniably a beautiful poem, and makes the statement to Anastasia that the assignment was you were supposed to write a poem that rhymed. Then says, because it didn't rhyme, I have to give you an F, a failing grade. Now, the first place you have to start from this as a teacher is, if it was really important for the poem to rhyme, the teacher should have built a little bit better background into why it was important. Why is the poem rhyming going to teach Anastasia something so much more important than her writing a beautiful poem that doesn't rhyme? That's the first thing where I would say that I think teachers are doing a much better job of addressing that you've got to start building things up from the beginning so that kids are succeeding rather than finding they've done something that's a failing grade at the end. The next piece is, let's say it is really important that the poem rhymed, and Anastasia missed that direction or didn't listen and wrote this one anyways. Well, okay then, 
I don't know if the answer is to give her an F in big red letters. I, I don't think to write in big red pen an F is the answer. Let's turn this into a conversation, and let's start it with Anastasia. You wrote a really beautiful poem, and I'm so proud of you. But I do need to talk to you about the fact that the poem had, the assignment had another requirement, and it was important because of blah, blah, blah. Not blah, 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 like it doesn't matter, but just in general. And when you skipped over it, you missed that part of it. And for that, we have to talk about this and we have to decide something. But instead, it's used as a moment to basically fail Anastasia and hope that the failing teaches her to do better in the future, where really all it does, as we see in the book, is it makes her frustrated, which is a very real reaction from the students. So I think what you see nowadays is you see more teachers who are really trying to look at this and say, okay, if there's very specific requirements for an assignment, let's make sure the kids understand why. And if they still make mistakes, how do we build on this? How do we acknowledge that, yes, you've made a mistake and I'm not going to let you off the hook, but how do we build it up to something more than a big red letter F on, on your work that you really enjoyed, that you really enjoyed creating and really loved sharing? So I think you see a lot more of that. There is still a lot going on in education. You know, there's a lot changing in education, and a lot of it is is very good, and some of it is is well-intentioned but micromanaged, I like to say. Um, you get a lot of administrators coming in, really high-level ones. I'm not even talking principals. Really high-level ones that uh, they have MBAs, but they don't have teaching degrees. They've read some news articles about new teaching methods, and then they want to make every classroom do exactly that all the time. And it ends up being more of a business-minded uh, micromanaging. So in those situations, you almost come up with the same thing. It's the kids have to be doing things this, they have to be doing that, and they need to be showing this. As a teacher, I kind of look at that and I say, okay, I agree, but that doesn't mean you're all you're doing is throwing up another system of rules for them that's going to set them up to not follow the rules and, and have another failing experience. So I think in, in teaching, you're seeing a lot of teachers who are embracing this idea of letting the kids be creative and, and letting them do all these things. I also think that some of the people who are well-intentioned but don't, but don't spend enough time in the classroom to know any better are sort of uh, bringing in this whole new other set of rules with the intention of saving public schools when, in fact, I don't think that's really what they need saving from, if that makes sense. That's my long-winded soapbox answer. So, <laughs> Along with her parents, another important relationship for that has a big impact on Anastasia, although it's a very one-sided relationship, is that between Anastasia and her grandmother. And if you want to talk a little bit about what that relationship is and why it's so important to Anastasia. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The relationship with Anastasia's grandmother was... Something that I thought was really relatable for me, because when I read the book, I had a 93-year-old grandmother, a uh, great-grandmother, actually. Anastasia has a 92-year-old grandmother, and it was kind of one thing that I immediately identified with. Now, the difference between the two was my great-grandmother could remember my name. Anastasia's grandmother cannot remember Anastasia's name, which kind of leads to the one-sided part. You know, at the same time, I think, you know, there is a lot of meaning she pulls out of it. She's It's the whole crossing of different generations, the whole understanding who that person is and where they come from. And, yes, there's different levels of dementia that play into our relationships with our grandparents. And for Anastasia's, it's very confusing to her at times. But I also think it just understanding 
how this cycle of life happens and everything does end up having a really positive effect on her. And for me, I remember, you know, thinking, oh, I have a great grandmother who we we didn't even refer to her as great grandmother. She was just my grandma, one of my other grandmas. And, you know, thinking, oh, 93, she's so old. That's a wow. And then having a finding a character who was also having this idea that, oh, has this really old grandma who she goes to see in assisted living and everything. And understanding that that was, yeah, a part of a, a part of the natural cycle of life. And there is a point very shortly after I had read Anastasia Krumpnik the first time, my grandma had ended up, my great-grandma had ended up passing away. So there was an element of Anastasia's book that made me understand that, yeah, there's this element of having older people in your lives. And sometimes they're meaningful, and sometimes they can't remember your name, but they're meaningful in a different way. And uh, understanding that that's a part of something that happens, and there's you figure out a way through it, I guess. Are there any particular passages from this book that you'd like to share? Yes, so I will read from the beginning. So this will just give you a good idea of the voice of the book and a little bit uh, about her. Chapter 1. Anastasia Krupnik was 10. She had hair the color of Hubbard squash, 14 freckles across her nose, and seven others in places that she preferred people not to know about, and glasses with large owl-eyed rims which she had chosen herself at the opticians. Once she had thought that she might like to be a professional ice skater, but after two years of trying, she still skated on the inside of her ankles. Once she had thought that she might like to be a ballerina, but after a year of Saturday morning ballet lessons, she still couldn't get the fifth position exactly right. Her parents said, very kindly, that perhaps she should choose a profession that didn't involve her feet. She thought that probably they were right, and she was still trying to think of one. Anastasia had a small pink wart in the middle of her left thumb. She found her wart very pleasing. It had appeared quite by surprise, shortly after her 10th birthday, on a morning when nothing else interesting was happening, and it was the first wart she had ever had or ever seen. It's the loveliest color I've ever seen in a wart, her mother, who had seen others, said with admiration. Warts, you know, her father had told her, have a kind of magic to them. They come and go without any reason at all, rather like elves. Anastasia's father, Dr. Myron Krupnik, was a professor of literature and had read just about every book in the world, which may have been why he knew so much about warts. He had a beard the color of Hubbard squash, though not much hair on his head, and he wore glasses for astigmatism, as Anastasia did, although his were not quite as owly. He was also a poet. Sometimes he read his poems to Anastasia by candlelight and let her take an occasional very small sip of his wine. Catherine Krupnik, her mother, was a painter. Very often there was a smudge of purple on her cheek or a daub of green on one wrist or elbow. Sometimes she smelled of turpentine, which painters use. Sometimes she smelled of vanilla and brown sugar, which mothers use. And sometimes, not very often, she smelled of Ye Riven perfume. And the bookcases of their apartment were four volumes of poetry, which had been written by Myron Krumpnik. The first one was called Laughter Behind the Mask, and on the back of the book was a photograph of Myron Krupnik, much younger, when he had a lot of hair, holding his glasses in one hand and half smiling as if he knew a secret. Anastasia's father hated that book, or said that he did. Anastasia sometimes wondered why he kept it in the bookcase if he hated it so much. She thought it must be like the feeling she had had when she was eight, when she hated a boy named Michael McGuire so much that she walked past his house every day just to stick out 
her tongue. And yeah, so that's a nice opening to the book. And it, a couple of the things it points out that you can infer are, um, one, you know, right away it shows you that her parents are very arty people, but the way they sort of interact with her isn't as flamboyant as artists are sometimes depicted in, uh, in literature. They're still, you know, they're very boisterous, but not really flamboyant. And there's little things in it that, as an adult, I realized that I never did as a kid. Like, for instance, he hated his first book of poetry, though he put it right where everyone could see it, which is pretty much a, a perfect metaphor for every writer who has a book out there, and they love that people get a chance to read it, but when it comes down to it, they're so insecure about it and worried they're going to be judged for it, which is pretty much 100% of authors out there. So <laughs> it's uh, lots of cool things like that, and... The book's filled with them. Every chapter kind of tackles some part of Anastasia, you know, basically starts with a conversation with her and her parents telling them something she's feeling in her head and her parents just having these really amazing yet thought-provoking responses to it that you just wouldn't expect the parents to have but are somehow perfect. Well, Mike, thanks for sharing that. And thank you so much for taking time to share this book and talk to me today about it. I also have to add that uh, this won't be apparent to anybody listening to the podcast, but earlier I had uh, some technical difficulties. Uh, we just started the interview, uh, got through most of it, and then it suddenly just <laughs> vanished. But Mike was gracious enough to agree to do the interview a second time. And so I really do appreciate you taking the time to do that as well. No problem at all. Thank you so much for having me on, Jody. And, you know, just uh, wanted to throw out there, guys, if, if you're interested in anything that I'm doing with either, you know, my books or music, it's MikeGrossoAuthor.com, M-I-K-E-G-R-O-S-S-O-A-U-T-H-O-R.com. And, and if it's okay with you, Jody, I was just going to mention that, you know, I do have a Kickstarter for a musical project I'm calling uh, Silent Explosion. I'm basically saying that it's a, a children's author trying to make a rock album. So if that sounds good, you can check it out by searching on Kickstarter or it's uh, listed on my homepage of my website. So Okay, well, thanks for that, Mike. Thank you so much, Jody. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art is provided by Creative Pro 180, courtesy of Fiverr, which can be found at www.fiverr.com. You can visit me at jleemott.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. Until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.